you've brought a Bible, it's time to get it out. We sure hope you have. If you uh, haven't, there should be some few Bibles, at least in the back. And um, know this, that we here at Grace Evan believe it to be the, the inerrant and infallible and inspired word of the living God. We're going to um, read in a moment Psalm 27. So if you'll find that, I'll read it in just a second. But uh, let me tell you what I'm up to first. <clears throat> For the next two weeks, today and next week, I'm going to speak on the subject of fear. F-E-A-R. And I could really speak a whole lot more than two Sundays. Because as you probably already know, um, the, the most often repeated command in the scriptures is fear not. And the Bible repeats that so frequently because, very frankly, (laughs) there's a whole lot to fear. And so what we're going to do is look at two Psalms, Psalm 27 today, Psalm 34 next week. And both of those Psalms deal with the subject, um, maybe not entirely, but are a portion of those Psalms are dedicated to the subject of fear. And by the way, they're not the only two. There are numerous Psalms. Psalm 46 is another one that I could have used, but I've chosen to use these two. But what we're going to do in these two weeks is I'm going to, I'm going to pick from both Psalms. We're going to focus on Psalm 27 this morning, but I'm going to draw from Psalm 34. Next week, we're going to focus on Psalm 34 and I'm going to pick from Psalm 27. Because we're, we're talking about a subject, a topic, and the topic is fear. So you follow in your copies as I read to you the entirety of Psalm 27. Here we go. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though the war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. The Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. 
You know, I started to, to begin my sermon with several quotes from literature and from, from various sources of expertise. You know, like um, W.H. Auden's great, long, rambling poem about um, four people who are drinking in a bar and they're discussing self-actualization and they realize they can't find any. And the title of the poem that you may have read once, the title of the poem is The Age of Anxiety. Or Ernest Becker, who is certainly no friend of Christianity. Ernest Becker, who, who uh, famously said that there is a subterranean rumble of panic that lies just beneath the surface in all of us. I started to do that, but I thought, you know, you really don't need to hear, you don't, you don't need to have experts tell you something that you already know. There's all kinds of fears around it. If it's not, if it's not the economy, it's my health. And if it's not my health, it's my wife. And if it's not my wife, it's my job. And if it's not my job, it's my kids. You know, guys, I don't know what you want to, how you want to view what I'm going to do this morning. I, you know, you can call it, you can call it counseling. You can call it advice. You can call it mentoring. You can call it guidance or direction. I don't, I don't know what you want to call this this morning. But folks, we got issues. And, um, the best advice that we're going to get it's going to come from this book. Uh, you may think you need to call, go out and go home and call your accountant or your broker or your, your psychologist or your uh, banker. And, and you may need to call, make all those phone calls. But none of those are going to help you with the subterranean rumble of panic that lies just beneath the surface. And I can't help you either. I got as many fears as you do. But all of us, all of us need to listen to this. I mean, not those white pants. Not to my sermon, but you need to listen. You need to give ear to what God has to say. Because what's found in here, I think, will help us cope with our fears. There are three pieces of biblical psychology that I want to point you to this morning. There's a whole lot more in these psalms and and, and in the psalms concerning fear that that we could. But I I want to mention just three things. Three things that that I think are are, are good insights to help us as we try to cope with our own fears. So so here's the first one. Uh, The first piece of biblical insight is that what I want to be and what I am are two different things. Now, let, let me explain. Gang, I don't know whether you noticed this uh, when I read Psalm 27, but basically there are two halves to Psalm 27. There's, there's verses 1 through 6, and, and the tone of, of verses 1 through 6 is, is confidence, it's triumphant faith, it's joy. And then in verse 7, suddenly, there in verse 7, everything changes it's like after verse 6, David begins to freak out. The, the tone of verses 7 through 14 are sad. They're, they're plaintive. There's these pleas for mercy and forgiveness. He complains about desertion and, and danger and liars, enemies at his, at his doorstep. 
These two halves of this psalm are so opposite that there are some who have suggested that they were never intended to be side by side. And that somewhere in the vast stretches of the past, somebody called a redactor took these two halves and glued them together. Now, the people who say that are people who don't really care a whole lot for this book anyway. But um, if you know anything, guys, about the Bible's view of man, you know that these two things aren't so opposite after all. Both of these things are found in all of us. That is, there is a side of me that is triumphant and joyful and confident. Oh, it lasts for about two of the, every 60 minutes of each hour. The other 58 are normally dedicated to the other. I am overtaken. You know, the, the, um, the New Testament has a way of describing this. Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about this old man and this new man that struggle against one another. Gang, both of these halves are found in both, in all of us. These are not opposites. We are self-contradictory people. We are self-conflicted. There is a part of me that wants to be this. But in reality, I'm not that, I'm this. You know, and I I think one of the greatest misunderstandings that non-Christians have about us Christians is that we claim to be perfect. And consequently, they love to see us fail. Gang, when I became a Christian, I I wasn't drained of all those pre-Christian juices. I've made no claim to be perfect. In fact, here's what I claim. What I want to be and what I am are two different things. Guys, if, if you haven't if you haven't seen it, let me just show you in the text. Look, look at what he says at verse, in verse 1 of Psalm 27. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, let me read you one verse out of Psalm 34, which we'll look at more closely next week. He says, I sought the Lord and he delivered me and delivered, answered me and delivered me from all my fears. He says over here, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid? Of whom shall I be afraid? And over here he says, oh my, the Lord has delivered me from all my fears. What I want to be and what I am, they're not the same thing. And I, um, I think, I hope you know that about the, the honesty of the scriptures in dealing with us. It, 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 makes very clear that there is this struggle that you see happening, displayed in Psalm 27, that struggle that's going on in all of us. Okay, Here's the second piece of biblical psychology that I, I want to spend some time on, and that is, I want you to notice how David deals with his fears. Um, <laughs> you know, guys, um, I heard a a radio spot this week. Um, and um, 
I'm not sure I should even mention this, but I think everybody is particularly um, sensitive these days to all the stuff that's going on around us. And this radio spot was put on, it was well-intentioned, and I'm, I'm sure that the motives are wonderful, and it was talking about how we face our problems slash fears. This man said, the way that you face them, I've always found the best way to face them is to face them head on. I want you to know something, ladies and gentlemen, that that's not how the Bible tells you to face them. If you will, if you will watch um, how the psalmist, in coping with his fears, the, the focus that he has is not on the problem. It's not on his circumstances. The way he would suggest that fears are to be addressed is not by coping with the circumstances. It's by facing the God of the circumstances. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? His consumption is not with the issue. It's not with the circumstance. It's, it's with God. Let me, let me tell you a couple of stories in which I hope will illustrate my point, but... This past summer, um, <laughs> I, I was facing a, um, a minor surgical procedure that is fairly routine. And I had a friend who was facing the same minor surgical procedure, but his was about four days in front of mine. Now, this guy, this friend of mine, had a history of acid reflux. Everybody knows what that is, you know. Well, I don't have that problem, but um, uh, he had this problem with acid, the old Nexium pill, and all that business. And during this minor surgical procedure, he began to choke on refluxed stomach fluids, and um, and very frankly, that can be pretty. And they got to his lung. Now, you know that when fluids get to your lung, you immediately have pneumonia. But that can be kind of serious. Um, but it was ably and professionally and capably managed and, and everything was fine. But the word that is used to describe that event is called aspirated. He aspirated. So the night before my minor surgical procedure, I, I was awakened by this soul-jolting fear. And in my semi-conscious state, the only thing that I could hear was aspirated. You know, and it just kept over and over, aspirated. Uh, you know, and I, and I, I was, wide awake, flopping around in the aspirated, and I and I I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I kept I, I finally I said, well, you know, sleeping is out of the question. So I finally got out of the bed. I paced around and you know, this is two AM in the morning, trying not to wake Susie up, and I'm roaming around in the house and and just sweaty palms and thinking about aspirating. And after about twenty minutes of this I decided, oh, this is foolishness. I'm going to get back in bed. So I got back in bed, and I I began to quote some verses. Actually, I only quoted one. I read the other. But I began to try to call to mind some of those texts that I knew. For instance, 
Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 that says, For it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You know what that says, don't you? It says that you are, you don't die by accident. You die by appointment. Here's the other one that I got up and read. This is in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself, listen, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Based on those two texts, I came to this conclusion that no fluids from my stomach were going to make it to my lungs unless... Unless God granted permission. I couldn't see any good reason for him to do that. But but just because I can't see a good reason for him to do that doesn't mean that there isn't one. But, but guys, do you see what I'm trying to say is that my peace was restored. Not by hitting my problem head on. You know, um, I don't have a history of reflux. Therefore, I'm in good shape. Quiet down, soul. No. No, it's not facing the circumstance, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to find out who God is and what he said, who is in charge of my circumstances. You fix your eyes on the, on the situation and fear stays. David is dealing with his fears. By going back to, rem- to, to remember what the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Listen to this one. This is in Psalm 46, which he says, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Do you see the order, ladies and gentlemen? His focus is not on his minor surgical procedure. His focus is on the God of his circumstances. Let me give you another story, another illustration, or tragic. The text, Psalm 27 doesn't say this, and, and I, I, I can't prove this. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm right, but I, 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 when I was preparing this, I couldn't help but think, I wonder if David was um, thinking about his experience with Goliath when he, when he wrote this. Remember that story, 1 Samuel 17? Um, Goliath, the big Philistine giant comes out and he's taunting the armies of Israel and there's the Philistines on this side and there's the army of Israel on this side and, and Goliath would come out every morning and he's this big giant guy and, and he's, you know, saying, bring somebody out to fight me. I'm, you know, we'll just settle it between the two of us. And all the army of Israel is kind of quaking in the bushes. You know, we don't want to go out and fight Goliath. I don't want to fight Goliath. He's so big. And then David comes onto the scene and he hears Goliath taunting the Israel, the, the armies of Israel and the God of Israel. And David's response is this. Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that I'm awfully small compared to Goliath. And therefore, you know, it, it doesn't look good in my battle with him. But Goliath, when you compare him to the God of Israel, he gets awfully small. You see, guys, Goliaths shrink when the focus is not on Goliath, but when the focus is on the God of all your circumstances. You get your eyes off of Goliath, and you begin to 
you begin to focus on who God is and what he said to you and what his promises are. Gang. I know, like you know, that the fear du jour, the fear of the day, is the economy. And that is an ugly reality, is it not? But ladies and gentlemen, the economy is not the ultimate reality. The economy serves God. So, get your focus off of the economy and fix your attention on God and who He is and what He has said. We don't, we don't focus on the circumstances, ladies and gentlemen. We focus on the God of our circumstances. You, you, you don't deal with the situation, you deal with God. And gang, listen to me. The, the circumstance that you find yourself in, the situation that you're in, the mess that we're in, is normally there for the purpose of exposing our sin. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've got an economic mess. Yep, we do. What do we do? We bail out AIG and we bail out the uh, auto industry and we, and we fix the banks. No, ladies and gentlemen, we repent. God has exposed sin in us, so we repent. And then there may need some decisions and some decisions may need to be made, yes, and He will lead us through those. But gang, if we leave out that step of repentance, then here's what we do. We try to fix it, whatever our situation is, we try to fix it in all our vaunted wisdom. We end up making choices that simply worsen our situation and our fear increases. Guys, that's not how the psalmist did it. He says... He, he, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is, God is our refuge and our strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. Do you see how he does it? His attention is fixed not on whether he has reflux or not reflux, or whether he's invested in the right this or re- invested in the wrong this. It's, that's not how he does it. His attention is focused on God and who he is and what he said. And, and in the midst of that, Goliath gets smaller. Guys, you can't do it the other way. I don't think. No, I, I mean, don't do it the other way. You, um, you get yourself back in bed and you begin to say, there are no stomach fluids that are going to make it into my lungs unless God permits it. And he's going to do that if he permits it because it is my appointed time to die.
I can tell you this. I went back to sleep. And I think David did too. Okay, then there's a third piece of biblical psychology here that I want you to see, and then we're done. Guys, um, I'm not sure you can understand what I mean, but there is a redemptive feature to fear. That is, fear can be your friend. It can be our friend. Let me show you how. In my first point about what I am and what I want to be are two different things. This duplicity that's in all of us. Um, you notice as high as this psalm starts, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold. As high as this psalm starts, by the time we get to verse 9, it has sunk to an opposite low. There, there is a high in this psalm. But there is also this low in this psalm. Um, and, and guys, that's who we are. Don't you talk to your friends about my ups and my downs, my highs and my lows? Yes, we do. That's, that's, that's because we are duplicitous, self-contradicting creatures. We wish that our souls were healthier and higher and, and upper. That's what we want to be, but in reality, we're not there. So that's where fear comes in. I want you to look at Psalm 27. I want you to read with me. I want to read to you verses 2 and 3. Psalm 27, 2 and 3. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now, gang, just pick out some of the words that you see in those two verses. Uh, eat up my flesh, adversaries, foes, uh, an army encamp against me, um, war arise, uh, the day of um, the day of trouble. Guys, um, that's what he says in verses two and three. In that setting, in that set of circumstances. What you get in verses 1 and 4 are two monumental statements of faith. We've already looked at verse 1. Let me show you verse 4. Look at verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, gang, verse 4 just showed up there after verses 2 and 3 where he's talked about adversaries and foes and armies and enemies and trouble and people eating up my flesh. And then he says, one thing I have desired of thee, one thing I ask for, that I may gaze upon your beauty. Gang, here's my point. More often than not, statements like you find in verse 4 This kind of focused, united, clear, lofty statements of faith. Normally they come when um, I'm surrounded by enemies and my fears have overtaken me. Example. Anybody waiting on a pathology report for a biopsy? 
Anybody had that experience? Oh, yes. Do you know that period in there where you where they have the biopsy and then you have to wait for the pathology report? That's always the worst part, isn't it? You know, the you know the biopsy's a bit painful, but it's waiting for the report from the pathologist. That's the that's the problem. Those are the time, those are the days that we are just lit up. Um, I, when people tell me they've got to wait until over, over the weekend um, to get their pathology report, my heart goes out to them because I know what they're going through in the weekend. But it's in that weekend that we begin to think differently. We begin to say different things, think different things. You know, nobody waiting on a pathology report says, you know, I think I'll go out and buy a new house. I need to get a place at Pickwick. You know, um, I don't know how well you know my wife, but by the way, she's not with me this morning. She's taking care of a new baby that we had. I didn't have it, but my daughter did. But um, we have a new baby that was born on Tuesday, and so she's in D.C. Um, being a grandmother. But if you know my wife, if you, anybody who knows my wife knows that I'm telling the truth, she's a homebody. Doesn't like the spotlight, doesn't want to speak, doesn't want anything, doesn't want anybody looking at her. She's really been angry at me for 38 years that I've been in the ministry because, uh, you know, she didn't want any of that. She wants to be behind the scenes. She, she wants to take care of children and families and grandchildren, and she just wants to stay home. That's my wife. Well, back in March, we had a little problem. Um, she had a biopsy on a thyroid, and, you know, thyroid cancer. And so we're, we're messing around with this thyroid problem. So she finally goes in and had the biopsy and, um, and we had to wait for the pathology to come in. So one Wednesday night, you know, after church on Wednesday night, you know, we do have church here on Wednesday night. Just want y'all to know that. But, uh, um, on, on Wednesday night, Susie and I after church always go and get a little piece of pizza up at the pizza cafe. And so, uh, we're sitting at the pizza cafe and, and just eating a piece of pizza. And, and my wife looks at me and she says, by the way, we, we hadn't gotten the pathology report yet. We're just waiting on the, on the report. My wife looks at me and she says, babe, um, I, I think you should plan a trip for us to Europe. And I almost choked on my pizza. I, you are asking me to take you to Europe? Um, I mean, I'd, I'd be glad to, but... But where did that come from? And she said, well, you just never know um, how many more years of health we've got. You know, guys, it's when the enemies encamp at your doorstep that you get a fresh piece of clarity. You begin to think new thoughts and say different things. It might even look something like this. You know what? I need to get serious over my soul. I'm a trifler with spiritual things. I need to reprioritize my schedule. I need to get back to a pursuit of God. You know, ladies and gentlemen, you do know, don't you, that most of the time that when people come to make appointments with me, is when either fear or pain or difficulty has drive, has driven them to consider the, the unthinkable, the uncomfortable. An appointment with Dr. Young. They do crazy things. Because fear has for the first time in a long time 
given them a bit of clarity of thought. What am I doing with my life? How could I possibly waste it on foolishness? I need to seek refuge in God. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, just part of the purpose, not maybe the whole purpose, but just part of the purpose, the gathering of enemies at your doorstep is to produce a verse 4 in you, in us. David is wrestling with all these things that he mentions in verses 2 and 4. And then he says, one thing. One thing. It has restored a bit of spiritual sanity. And by the way, look at the one thing of verse 4, ladies and gentlemen. He's not looking... For something from God. He's not, he's not asking for wisdom or forgiveness or mercy. He simply says, I want God. I want God Himself. If I can have this one thing, I know I'll be okay. And notice, I love this, ladies and gentlemen. Notice what He calls Him to gaze upon the beauty. To gaze. By the way, looking and gazing are two different things. When you look at something, you're just trying to gather information. When you gaze at something, you're trying to taste its beauty. He's gazing. It's something that he finds beautiful. Gang, I've said this recently. I'm going to say it again. There is a vast difference between viewing God as useful and viewing God as beautiful. For a lot of us, God is useful. And to kind of round out the well-balanced life. And then there's such a thing as God is my beauty. When you serve Him because He's beautiful, it's an altogether different thing than serving him from his being useful to you. And, and, and I want you to notice, this is not academic, this is not intellectual. He says in verse 8, he says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you. This is an existential grasp of his heart. He wants to lay hold of that which is beautiful. And guys, he's doing that in the context of having people who want to eat up his flesh. You see, guys, uh, I'm saying that it's fear that clarifies. It, it may be all over again, maybe for the first time in a long time, but fear clarifies what is beautiful and what isn't. Fear clarifies my one thing. Why is that? Why, why, is, why does it only come then? Well, I'll tell you why, ladies and gentlemen, because we are so enchantingly, enchantingly deceived by sin. And the only thing that can, can loosen sin's deceptive grip on us 
this pain or fear or trouble. David, in a sense, is saying that um, the only thing that can ruin me is sin. Not the economy. The only thing that can really ruin me is sin. So what I want is an existential grasp of beauty. One other thing and I'm done. Guys, the Bible often speaks about this one thing business. For instance, it speaks in the New Testament of um, the pearl of great price where the, the merchant goes out and sells everything so he can have the one pearl of great price. You know that, Matthew 13. Uh, Paul speaks in Philippians uh, 3 about this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, looking forward to what lies ahead. This one thing. They're monomaniacal. <laughs> They're monomaniacs. They're maniacs for one thing. But I close with this. This is a story that you know well. It's in Luke chapter 10. It's a story about Mary and Martha. Uh, Jesus had come to Mary and Martha's house to have a meal. And Jesus is in the front room teaching. And and uh, Mary is in there. Martha's in the kitchen working like a little busy bee. And and um, she's upset. And she says in verse 40, Martha was distracted. Uh, she said, um, Martha was distracted with much serving and she went to him, to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to get up and help me. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. <laughs> Guys. We are anxious and troubled about many things, aren't we? What's the stock market going to do tomorrow? Is gas going to stay this low for a long time? Am I going to lose my job? What about my 401k? We are anxious about many things. And one thing, one thing is necessary. You know what that is? Do you? It's a grasp, an existential grasp of your heart that lays hold of the beauty of the finished work of Jesus Christ for sinners. you grasped that. Our Father, um, we are afraid. Um, we're just like David. We, we want to be in a place spiritually that we know we're not. And we are, we are wrestling with all kinds of fears, which is a normal part of trying to serve you in this fallen planet. And so what we're asking for, O oh God, is that you will hear us too and that you will deliver us from our fears as we refocus, as we fix our attention, not on, not on what is happening to us, but on what you said to us 
who you are, what you're like, and what you've said and promised. Would you help us to do that, Father? And and for people like me and probably my brothers and sisters here today, it's going to be something that happens on an hourly basis. Would you Would you prompt us as often as need be to remember who you are, what you've said to us, and what you've promised? Oh, God, would you give us that existential grasp of the heart that lays hold of the one who is altogether lovely, Jesus Christ. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.